This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, January 7th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The reader is Mark Haxo. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's scripture comes from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's Word. All right, get ready. We're starting a new sermon series. First, Peter. I've never preached Peter. Preached a lot of Paul, a lot of Old Testament. Never Peter, so I'm excited to preach in Peter. And I'm confident that this series is going to be a source of inspiration for us all. But I'm also convinced it's not going to happen until we have a little perspiration. It's going to make you sweat. It's a challenging book. This letter is written to people who are being persecuted because of their faith. They're not being persecuted because they identify as Christians. Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. They are being persecuted because they actually live differently than the world around them. You starting to feel a little tingle of sweat? A little itch? This letter is going to challenge every one of us, any one of us who claims to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but whose life doesn't look any different than the non-believer in the world. I'm glad someone's hearing this, right? That's our thought. I'm glad... Tommy's here to hear this. Do you know today it's, and it's to sound weird for me to say, but I actually believe it's as harmless as ever, as ever to label yourself a Christian. Because the term Christian has, I think, lost a lot of its meaning beyond words. And even if we could agree on what all Christians believe, there's a lot of confusion about how that belief should actually direct how we live. Unlike the people that Peter is writing to, with few exceptions, maybe a lot of exceptions, but I think few, I think today's Christians, and yes, I'm generalizing, I'm talking very big, and if you start to feel any kind of stirring or irritation, that's not me, that's the Holy Spirit, so sorry. I didn't name you, unless your name was Tommy, I apologize for that. But today's Christians seem to rarely live differently enough to warrant the kind of persecution we're going to read about. Today's Christians seem to be more interested in being popular than they are right. More concerned with the pursuit of happiness than holiness. Today's Christians often determine what is morally right by what is culturally acceptable, and they evaluate their own goodness by comparison to other Christians or non. 
Today's Christians rarely talk about sin. And although they claim to love Jesus, there's very few Christians that actually seem to obey Him as if like, okay, I'm literally going to love my enemies and forgive those who sin against me. Like, oh, He made me do what He actually says. I think today's Christians are a little more thankful for their own luxuries than they are concerned for the poor and the needy. Because essentially today's Christians think more about earth than they do eternity. Is that a fair assessment? Now, I call myself a Christian, so I'm looping myself into that place, but I think it seems pretty accurate. Maybe it's a little unfair. I'm not sure. But I do know that the people whom Peter is writing to are being persecuted not because they're putting up banners that say we love Jesus, or because they're labeling themselves something, it's because they're living differently. The first epistle of Peter is, I think, a line drawn in the sand. It's a call to be what I'm using, people of the way. To pursue holiness, to follow Christ as one whose life is not their own because it has been bought with a price. Because it's been bought with a price. Following Christ is more than a convenient label. It's more than playing it safe. It's more than the bare minimum devotion so as not to disrupt your life or your lifestyle. Did you know that, that following Christ is actually your life and your lifestyle? We like to say the first part. Christ is my life. What about Christ is my lifestyle? Christ is how I live. Christ is how I determine what I do. Christ is how I make my decisions. Following Jesus means identifying with Jesus, suffering with Jesus, serving Jesus without limits, and obeying Jesus when it's inconvenient, unpopular, and uncomfortable. And that's the kinds of people that Peter's writing to. And that's why it's a convicting letter. Because you read and you're like, wow, these people exist? Okay. It's convicting. Because there is a people of the way that Peter's writing to. Now, you don't need to go much further than Peter to see the kind of life that we're talking to. I don't know how much time you've spent thinking about the kind of dude Peter was. He's a pretty incredible guy and kind of a doofus at the same time, which I can relate to, right? But he's the kind of person or lives the kind of life that all Christians are really called to. His story is one of transformation from a simple family man and fisherman to leader of this thing called the church and martyr. The first verse, right, says that Peter, so it's the greeting, right? Is who it's from, Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter. There's a lot packed in those few words. 
Before Peter was an apostle, before he was even a disciple, he was Simon the fisherman. One who we may, might say uh, lived a normal life. He was a young Jewish man, probably 20s, mid-20s. People disagree. He was married. Possibly had kids. He was employed in a fishing business with his partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And fishermen back then were, you know, deadliest catch style. A little gruff, a little unkempt, a little vile, a little scruffy looking. Probably talked like truckers a little bit. Sorry if you're a trucker. You don't have to talk like a trucker. You know what I mean? The stereotype. But fishermen of the first century, they were the man's man. They were strong-bodied and, and had very strong opinions. That's why James and John are end up calling the sons of thunder, right? They're just like impulsive, strong. This was Peter. Well, Simon. At some point, his younger brother Andrew introduced him to this rabbi named Jesus, and everything changed. The Gospel of Mark actually records his call. Peter's walking, I mean, Jesus is walking along the sand and he sees Peter fishing. And he calls out to them. He says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And the text says, they immediately left their nets and followed him. The next two guys he speaks to are in the boat nearby. James and John says the same thing and it says immediately they followed him. That's from the Gospel of Mark which is likely the Gospel that Peter dictated to Mark. So it's likely Peter's story. Read the first chapter and notice how many times the word immediately shows up. They immediately followed him. Dropped their nets. See you later dad. James and John. Boom. Gone. Left their life. Their life was changed forever. Never went back to the business of fishing, though they would fish a few times after that. Simon became, by all signs, the first disciple of Jesus, and he followed him throughout his whole ministry. Later, Jesus renamed him Peter, meaning rock, and he was named this at the time where he made the first confession As Jesus says, who do people say I am? Oh, they say these things. Well, who do you say I am? You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And like, boom, Peter, you are the rock. And upon basically this truth, we're going to build the church. And like a rock, Peter did become the foundation for Jesus' mission in many ways, but he also became a pretty big obstacle at times. He was courageous, but really impulsive. He put his foot in his mouth all the time. And we kind of like, you listen to him, you read. It's kind of like when you read Adam and Eve, like, really? You're going to eat the fruit? Like, really? You couldn't resist one apple? Come on. And you read stuff like Peter, and you're like, man, what a doofus. Like, why are you saying that stuff? Like, he was with Jesus. I'm pretty sure if he is with Jesus saying dumb stuff, we probably would say dumb stuff too. That's why I love the disciples, because... The record of them is just such a real raw record of these guys that were normal. 
But Peter had the tendency to really be impulsive. And on the night Jesus was betrayed and that he would be arrested, he warns his disciples, look, you guys are all going to fall away. And what does Peter say? Ho, ho, ho. They might. But I will never fall away, Lord. I would die for you. And Jesus is like, yeah. You're going to deny me three times before the next morning. Peter's like, no way. Well, we read the story and we see that, yeah, way. It happened. And I think one of the most intriguing things about that whole experience is actually, and I think I have the verse. Maybe I don't. It's in the Gospel of Luke. And, oh, amazing. There it is. Thank you, Joel. After he denied him three times, there, look at that phrase, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. You want to know the only one that knew that? Peter. And so he tells that as part of his story. Right? Yeah, I, you know, the third time I denied him, he was being beaten. Yeah, he just looked at me and I broke. He's telling that story. Luke, the doctor, goes and investigates the whole narrative, the story of Jesus, and Peter obviously is telling him what happened exactly. So he's a humble guy. He was humble. He was changed. We see that basically, ultimately, he kind of goes through this process. I love, there we go. He starts as Simon as the fisherman. He goes, Peter, the disciple, which is a really kind of like, you know, he goes, good and bad, denies Jesus, but then he becomes this apostle. And that's who's writing now. Older in age, wiser, humbled, had incredible experiences. When he was sent, and that's what an apostle is, um, he was forgiven and restored after meeting the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus said, look, you're going to lead this thing. And I want you to care for my sheep. And he did for about 15 years. As you read the book of Acts, you can kind of it goes really fast, it seems, but there's lots of time in between there. So about for the first about 15 years, up to about Acts 9, Acts 10, really only Jews are coming to faith. And Peter was leading the charge of, of that kind of mission to the Jews, if you will. And the Jews, including Peter, didn't really believe the gospel was open to Gentiles. So I just kind of was, came to the Jews and fulfilled the Messiah, and they, didn't, they kind of forgot that the whole promise to Abraham was to bless all the nations. And so Peter struggled until God came to him in a dream and basically said, yeah, uh, the Gentiles actually, uh, I'm saving them too. And Peter was then led to a man's house named Cornelius. He was a Roman soldier. And they received the gospel. The whole house was baptized. Peter's like, okay. And actually what he said in Acts 10, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right and acceptable to Him. And the rest is history. As from that point, Paul becomes the leading missionary to the Gentiles. And Peter and Paul have their interactions and partnerships and Peter even commends Paul's writings in his own letters. Peter served the church his entire life until he was martyred in Rome. 
Jesus had predicted this at the end of the Gospel of John, that he would basically be crucified. History tells us that he was likely crucified upside down by request, not wanting to die in the same way his Lord Jesus did, giving encouragement to his wife on the way to her own death. Legend says, so it's hard to know if it's true history, that before his death, as he was waiting in a prison that you can still go visit today where Paul himself was also kept, that he converted several guards and over 40 different prisoners during his time before his death. All that to say, there can be no doubt about what Peter's life was dedicated to. He went from fishermen living his normal life with his family, not concerned too much with things of the Lord, to disciple, to apostle, to martyr. And now you have this letter that Peter is writing, this Jewish pastor writing what amounts to a pastoral letter to Gentiles to give them some perspective and to call them to a similar kind of life, to be the people of the way. And he addresses these people as Jews in many ways. An apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Okay, that's a weird phrase. It's strong or strange language to us, but it's very Jewish language. Even though Peter's writing to a Gentile audience, he calls them God's chosen people, the elect, part of the dispersion. And the dispersion is a reference to the Jewish diaspora, which is a time when the Jews were removed from their ancestral homeland like we talked about in Haggai and others when they came back, right? They were removed from their homeland and put in exile in different places around the world. The problem is his audience that he's writing to are neither Jewish nor are they physically exiled. They're Gentiles and they're living in their homeland where they were probably born and raised. So he uses this this term, exiles. He later used terms like strangers and sojourners to help Gentiles understand, to help us understand who we are in the world. Exiles in their own homeland. Now, earlier I suggested that there appears to be little difference in the lives of those who claim to follow Jesus and those who do not today. It's hard to tell the difference apart from Sunday mornings. And I think much of that's rooted in a failure to identify as what Peter calls exiles in this world. Living as exiles means knowing that this is not our home. It means that we're resident aliens. It means while we have much in common with those who we live among, there is something distinctly different about how we view the world. We are living in one kingdom and we are governed by another invisible kingdom. This is why verses like Philippians 3.20 tell us that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Or again, in Hebrews 13.14, For we here have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, I want you to think about your everyday normal mentality. Do you view yourself as an exile? As a resident alien? Living in a very visible kingdom, but being governed by an invisible kingdom of whom has your real citizenship. See, we're exiles because we have a different identity for those who are in Christ. We have a different loyalty. We have a different destiny than the rest of the world. And that should affect how we live. Even how we think and how we experience things. The phrase that came to mind was exilic amnesia. Forgetting we're exiles. Exilic amnesia leads us to think more about earth than we do about eternity. More about men than we do about God. I love how C.S. Lewis said it. He says this, if you read history you'll find that Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. It's amazing perspective that the great men and women of Christianity that did amazing things for the Lord did so because they thought more about eternity than they did the earth. And that it's possible that we have become ineffective. It's possible they become impotent and and weak and, and not influential anymore because we're thinking so much about the here and now forgetting that we are exiles. So, he writes essentially, to exiles. Christians are elect exiles. But anyone can call themselves an exile in the same way they can call themselves a Christian and it not really affect the way you live. Because a label doesn't change anything. So he spends some time trying to convince them what this means. Okay, let me, let me tell you what this means to be an exile. An exile according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. An exile in the sanctification of the Spirit. An exile for the obedience of Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. Let me tell you what this means. This is just in the greeting. He's like declaring who they are. Let me tell you who you are because if you know who you are, you will live differently. He wants them to appreciate how they became God's people, how they remain God's people, how they're to live as God's people until we're living with Him in eternity. So the first thing he says is, we are exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This whole passage, this one verse is very Trinitarian. But he says that we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So he's speaking to Christians, elect Christians, exiles, in their homeland. And he says, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That doesn't mean that God 
looked down the corridors of time and saw what we would do, that we would follow Him, that we would obey Him, and decided to include us in His plan. That's not what that means. On the contrary, it means that before an atom of the world was created, He knew you for those in Christ. Intimately. Personally. As much as it might feel different, you did not choose God. God chose you before you were able to make a single choice. He chose to create you. He chose to save you. He chose to set His love on you. His choice is based on nothing good or impressive in you or me, but His good pleasure. Out of all the peoples of the world that have ever been born, He chose a particular people to love. And this is very similar to how He chose the Jewish people. Just read the Old Testament. Do you know what? As He brought them into the promised land, he told them, yeah, you know, you're not that special. Which is weird to say, but he wanted to talk about, let me show you how much I love you, how I've chosen to love you out of all the peoples of the earth. He said this in Deuteronomy 7, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you for you were the smallest. You were dinky. You were insignificant. You were weak. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery to the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, the Jewish people were not born special. They were made special because God chose to love them and dwell with them. And He gave them salvation. He gave them relationship. He gave them knowledge. And He gave them hope that He didn't give to any other people. And it's the same with those whom God has redeemed in Jesus Christ. He has chosen them. He has loved them. He has given them something special. He has given them perspective and understanding that He has not given to the rest of the world. He has made that which is foolish to be, appear wise and right and true. Only God's people have any and every reason to rejoice because only God's people know God. So He tells you, like, He's chosen you. He's chosen you purposefully. You weren't accidental. It wasn't like, well, I guess you got some good things going. Why don't you why don't you join the team? It wasn't because you figured out something that, that no one else figured out. It's because he said, I love you. You're mine. You ever been the last guy picked on a team? Right? That's a horrible experience. You ever wonder what it felt like to be the first guy picked on the team? And I know it's a little bit different because usually picking the guys that are like, you know, well, that guy's good at playing, so I'll pick him. But that's not how it worked. There's this, there's this piece where God just basically said, you're mine. And he called you by name. You're mine. The Lord knows your name. And he's given you a new name that is Jesus Christ. He's chosen us. He goes further 
And he says something else that's kind of crazy. He says, yeah, God, before the world was created, He chose you, and then in the sanctification of the Spirit, you became an exile. The people of God are sanctified by the Spirit, which is a complicated way of saying you are set apart. This is both a a positional reality, like you are set into God's family, sealed by the Spirit, guaranteed an inheritance, never to be kicked out, but it's also a progressive one. Like when you first come out of the devil's adoption agency, you don't look much like Jesus. You don't look like one of the sons of the king, but over time you begin to. You become over time to become in practice what you are already in position. You start to act like your father. Act like your brother. When you believe in Jesus, when you trust Him alone for your salvation, you are filled with His Spirit. And the Spirit of God, this is so important, the Spirit of God is what distinguishes a believer from a non-believer. The Spirit of God is what empowers any believer to live differently in the world. We possess a person in us that He Himself, according to Galatians, identifies us as God's children. And He empowers us to live accordingly. Do you know the Jewish people were given the law, right? So Peter is always speaking through this Jewish context. So they're given this law to live holy lives by. To live differently than the world. To be set apart, if you will, from all the nations around them. But what the law proved to do is not really be able to save people, but really reveal how bad they actually were. How hard and stony their hearts actually were. But God, being merciful and gracious, told His people that a day would come when He would give them a new heart and He would write His law on their heart, and He would give them a new spirit. And what would that spirit do? Good question. Ezekiel 11 says, I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove a heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why? That they may walk in My statutes and obey My rules and obey them. Keep My rules and obey them. And they shall be My people and I will be their God. God's people possess the Holy Spirit to help them walk according to the Spirit. Like, He doesn't command you to do anything that He Himself doesn't empower you to do. That's incredible. So as you read God's Word, like, I'm called to live like this, and He's like, yeah, I'll help you. Don't worry, we got this. He is the one doing it through us. He is the one empowering us to be successful, if you will, to be strong and courageous to do all that He has commanded us to do and say. A Spirit-filled Christian walk is going to look different than the world walking in the flesh because Galatians 5 tells us that the Spirit is against the flesh. That it's a war going on. And so when you're hearing Peter like, man, you're going to live holy lives. He's not calling you to be any different than the person you actually already are. He says, the Bible says that the Spirit is the comforter. So think about having a divine comforter in your heart when things get difficult. 
You think you would endure suffering differently than the world? To know and believe that you have a, a divine teacher in your heart, dwelling with you, instructing you. Do you think that you may have better understanding than the world around you that can't figure out why things are going the way they are? To, to believe that you have a spirit who is called the helper in you to get through your day, to be successful as a husband or a wife or a son or daughter or mother or father, like maybe more successfully than those in the world because you're not depending upon yourself. Apart from God's Spirit, we cannot please God, but because we are God's chosen people, we have God's Spirit and we are a dependent people who don't have to do life alone. We're carried, if you will, by God, directed by God, helped by God, taught by God, comforted by God. So as Peter's setting them up, He's setting them up. He's like, yeah, I'm going to ask you to do all these things. I'm going to call you to live a certain way. And he's going to return back to here and go, because the Spirit's in you. So don't tell me you can't do it. Because I'm appealing to the Spirit of God in you who says you can. And the last part, he says, and the most unpopular part, we are elect exiles for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. You're not going to like this. No one likes this. The flesh in you doesn't like this. It feels like obedience today has become a bad word. Peter says that we were chosen, set apart by the Spirit, for obedience. You know, Moses led his people out of Egypt to this mountain. And at that mountain is where God met his people and he gave them the law and he confirmed his special relationship with them. In Exodus 24, you can read this yourself, he confirms the covenant. Okay, He gets the law and that's not just the Ten Commandments. It's all these other things that we see in Leviticus. right? All these laws. He writes them all down and he reads them to the people. The entire law. So imagine like, okay, open up the book of Leviticus, go. Reads it. Reading every detail of it. And when they get done, what do the people say? Together with one voice. You can read this in Exodus 24. All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. So they say that. This is the sprinkling of the blood. Ready? So, they get up the next day and he builds an altar. And they start having sacrifices. And he takes half the blood from the sacrifices and he throws it on the altar. And then he reads the law again. Like, we have trouble getting through a 45-minute sermon. Imagine reading the book of Leviticus two days in a row. Everybody's gathered together. He's reading and as they hear every single word, what do they say? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will all be obedient. And he takes the other half of the blood and he throws it on them. Confirming the covenant. Giving your signature. From the very beginning, 
And this is where Peter, right? The Jewish guy. From the very beginning, God's people were called to not just be separate and special and have your own little Jewish club over here apart from the world. It was to be a people who lived differently, who lived holy lives, who lived basically to honor the Lord and to glorify Him in all that they do in word and thought and in deed. And they said, we will do that. I need you to understand that Jesus didn't suffer and die so that a bunch of people would label themselves Christians and then go about living however they wanted. That's not the Gospel. According to Paul's letter to Titus, it says Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession that are zealous for good works. That sounds like obedience. Did you know that Jesus Himself said, You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, what a friend we have in Jesus. Everyone loves Jesus as a friend. You can YouTube a video called Jesus is my friend. It's really creepy. But it's this idea of like, you know, like, yeah, Jesus is my friend. Sure, we're buddies. We're great. Like, you know what Jesus said? You're my friend if you obey. And I know we like, and I believe in grace. I believe that we are not saved and rescued and and counted worthy because we do good. But if we truly know the grace that has saved us, then we desire to obey and honor. Because we've been accepted, not to be accepted. Obedience is part of salvation. Knowing what Jesus has called me to do and devoting myself to doing it is part of salvation. It is evidence of God's grace in you, of the Spirit working in you. You may fall flat on your face, but is that desire there? Is that pursuit there? And as you fall, do you admit your mistakes and get up and say, forgive me, Lord, I'm going to go again. That's the Gospel. The Apostle John Jesus' best friend warns us, saying, whoever says I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And yet as I start, it's like, why, why does the walk of Christians look so similar to the walk of the world? A verse I was struck by just this morning as I was praying over what I was going to say represented kind of the mentality that, that I think or hope that we understand. As Peter writes to us, as you are chosen exiles empowered by the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
Because you were bought with a price. You've been forgiven. You've been freed. You've been redeemed. You've been rescued. You've been adopted. You have been given an inheritance. Heaven, wait for Be and live who you are. And glorify God in all that you do. This is what Peter is going to call to us. He's going to say, you need to be the people of the way. And he's going to describe in this letter that there is a way to walk. Did you know that the first Christians were called that? They were called people who belong to the way. If you read Acts chapter 9, when Paul, Saul, is going to persecute and kill and arrest Christians in Damascus, he is bringing letters of authority to find people who belong to the way. If you read Acts chapter 9 and I believe Acts chapter 10, they say it many times, the people of the way. You have to ask yourself, like, the only reason a people would be called the people of the way or identified as a people of the way is because of what they believed actually impacted the way they lived. That's what, it's the only thing it can mean. They weren't first called Christians. They were first called the people of the way. Those who are in Christ have a different identity. They live with a different loyalty. And they look forward to a different destiny than the world does. And based on that reality, I will summarize very quickly what Peter's going to say in this letter. First, because of who we are in Christ, we live a particular way. I won't tell you all the ways that that Peter's going to go into, but we will as we get into this letter because it affects how you relate to the world, it affects how you relate to your spouse, it affects how you relate to the government, it affects how you relate to your money, it affects how you relate to everything. Because of who we are. Not to become who we should be, because of who you are in Christ, we live a particular way. But then he'll say the second thing. Because of the way we live, in obedience to Christ, we will suffer in this world. It will be hard. Socially, economically, relationally, every way you can think of it will be hard. Simply because of how you live. And we have to ask ourselves really quickly as, as you're reading all these things and Peter like, these people suffering and struggling and Okay, well, why aren't I? Well, it must have been because it was Nero and the Roman persecution. Nope. These people are experiencing a kind of persecution in their own cities and towns because of how they live differently. But think about this. Because of our suffering in this way of life, like Christ, this is beautiful. This is the Dare I say the goodness of suffering. You know what suffering does more than anything? Direct your eyes away from the earth and put your hope in something beyond it. This is actually called, and Peter's called the apostle of hope, and this is often called the epistle of hope. And one of the things he says is like, man, we're supposed to live a particular way, and as you live that way, it's going to really stink. But the more it stinks and the more it's difficult and the more you endure, you're going to lift your eyes and go, oh, there's got to be something more. And there is. You're hoping in something 
of a better value, a greater life, a better country, a different kingdom. And here's the beauty of it. We always talk about like, I I need to go share the gospel with more people. And, And that's true. You need to tell people. But you're telling people because of the great hope that you have as you suffer and experience difficulty for the way you live in this life. There's no greater evangelistic tool than someone who suffers greatly and still remains hopeful. And Peter's the one who's going to say, be prepared to have an answer for the hope that you have. Implying that, man, this is after he said, it's going to be hard and difficult. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Because your hope lies beyond this world. And guess what people need? Hope beyond this world that cannot be taken away. In closing, we, as we read 1 Peter, my prayer is that we will learn to become the people of the way. We will learn to know what it means to live as exiles, chosen by God, empowered by the Spirit, living in obedience to Christ with great hope for His return. And I tell you these things not to make you feel guilty. Though you're like, really? You started off saying how we suck as Christians, and now you're like, bring it up. I'm just trying to encourage you, okay? I really am not saying this to go like, oh, we are just so horrible. Though we are horrible, that's okay, because it makes Jesus good. But it is to say this. Jesus is the one who said these things. And as he's telling his disciples in John 15, I believe, you need to obey, you need to abide in me. He only tells them, he says, I tell you these things that you should obey, that you should live holy lives, that you should honor me so that your joy will be full. That's why. And I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. Jesus says, look, if you will trust me, if you will confess that, that, yeah, you fall short often, if you will depend upon me to live the life that I've called you to do, my joy will be in you and your joy will be made full. And a pursuit of holy life will be the most evangelistic and most joy-filled thing that you can do in this life. Get your eyes off earth and get it on heaven. Amen. Let's pray.